0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Here's part two of our discussion on narrative between Matt, John, and I, Paul, on the issue of narrative, and narrative as a way of understanding the coherence of things, the coherence of ourselves, the coherence of the New Testament and the old testament and really the coherence of the world but here's part two yeah,
1: this point. is paul's point you know and it's actually it's one of the best things that paul has ever told me and i've i've told this to so many different you know drug addicts that i counsel i've told it to margaret i've told it to all the people i think that's right and that is he's put this in a way that just crystallized it for me he said you know matt he said you're not the person that you think you are in other words if if i were to ask you to describe yourself you would describe yourself in a way with a story that's not altogether true because you actually need my input to really accurately tell the story of Matt. It's like, well, you need John's input. You need Margaret's input, you need okay. Paul's input. You can't really – you're not up to the task. You're not adequate to rightly tell your story. And this actually goes back to what we were saying earlier is that we really would say to ourselves, we would say, I'm just stupid, you know, unworthy, you know, this is just shame, right? That I'm just, I should, you know, I'm worthy of death. And of course God doesn't love me. And of course I'm a failure. And I'm a, you know, it's like, we're, you know, you're, I'm going to go slit my throat. I'm going to slit my throat. That's right. It's like, I mean, you really are telling yourself a story, or you could do it the other way, right? You could do the ego formation where you're telling yourself the story of, I'm the best. I'm the greatest. I'm the smartest. I'm the... I'm David Billy Hart. That's <laughs> right. You know, I, I do appreciate that. that's Actually, that has really helped a lot of people because... You know, and especially whenever I work with uh, people who are, you know, have substance abuse problems and things like that, or even people that just struggle with self-image problems. We are more than what we think about ourselves. We actually need the community to tell us who we are. We Mm. are actually quite deceived about it, really.
2: Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah.
2: you know that's Harold's point in his book.
0: Run that down. I can't remember. In, in Hannah's child. I had that book. Well,
2: he just life. says something like that. In the, I mean, he's I've heard him say it talking about the book. But essentially, you know, how does somebody who has spent most of their life saying your experience doesn't matter in theology write a autobi- autobiographical book about theology? <laughs> And so he's saying, "Well, what I what I meant," and he's saying, "Yes, all this works out in, in a communal way where we're with other people, and we tell our stories best by talking about our friends rather than talking about ourselves." Mm.
1: David Hart's point too—that's germane to universalism. He's saying, "Well, how can I be saved if you're not saved?" And so Paul. When we think about, you know, scriptures and the tradition, you know, John was saying that these are obviously products of history, you know, that they're historical documents, but what we've been talking about though is being living witnesses, right, of the story of the uh, of the God of love and the God of truth. How do we live out not just that sort of inscribed word of the tradition or of the scriptures, but to maybe tell the story with our with our lives?
0: Yeah, let me <laughs> I always want to answer my own question. Let me. I was just thinking about your your picture there of, you know, if you knew something about literature, which I'm not well informed. But one of the things that I encountered in Japan was a form of literature that's called the Shi Shosetsu. And it's the confessional novel. And it's a a form of writing, and it, it is the modern novel. And, and you can see it's kind of compact development there in Japan. And so it arises when, in fact, a very particular kind of Christianity, a confessional, you know, a Roman Catholic, or this understanding that you give confession. But in a Japanese understanding of that, what it came to mean was that in some way, in confession, or in suffering per se, there is the truth. That is, that suffering came to have an inherent meaning. This sounds strange, but but once you get into the the nature of these novels, you get at the death-dealing aspect to it. That is, that it's just this endless, inward journey in which people's uh, imaginings or they in many ways, it's a sexualized kind of, especially Mishima, Yukio Mishima, you know, his pictures of a kind of masochistic or sadistic sexuality in which he's actually dealing with his own inner desire. And many of these guys, including Mishima, most spectacularly, kill themselves. Japan has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. But among novelists in Japan, and by novelists, this would also include, interestingly enough, anime people doing uh, even comic novels, that they have a disproportionate number of suicides. I don't know if people in the West are familiar with. Are you guys familiar with Yukio? No. Uh, yeah, you all, I mean,
1: from you. Yeah, from you, but not. Yeah, you did the on them. Um, you can go
0: yeah. on YouTube. I don't know why you would want to, but you can, and see him giving his final speech from the roof of the Self-Defense Forces building. And he had come in and tied up a general, uh, I think, yeah. Mashita. Or, and he, in a second, then he goes out, he has this megaphone. And so his whole life is built up to this moment in which he's going to go in then back into the office uh, of Mashida, and he's going to com- commit ritual seppuku, ritual suicide. In ritual suicide, you take the short sword and you slit your belly open and you remove your innards and set them on a, a, you know, a tray, and then you bow, and the second severs your head if you can do that whole thing, that proves you're a true man. Now that's a that's an interesting story, isn't it? It's an interesting narrative.
1: Yeah, we have a name for that kind of story. It's called a horror story. <laughs>
0: yes. And so I think you could go through the kinds of literature. There's the Shishosetsu, the confessional novel. There were novels prior to this in Japan, the Tales of Genji or Tales of Genji would be something like Homer. I don't know if you know that Homer is kind of a set piece. You really don't get into characters or into people's interiority. But in fact, you know, you could put almost any person in there. You know, if you think of, uh, if you illustrated it in terms of modern storytelling, it would be on the order of watching uh, the television series like Columbo or Gunsmoke, you know precisely what the characters are going to do. They're just kind of set pieces. I think that's a form of literature that, in fact, there is a narrative there, but, of course, there's really not personhood as we know it in the Shi Shosetsu or the confessional novel or in many forms of literature as we have it in the West. I'm just I think this is illustrative, then, of failed storytelling, failed narrative, that they could be quests. In, in a sense, quest captures it all because you're always there's it's either a mechanical, technical quest, you know, Colombo, he's going to figure out the murder, or in fact, it may be a quest for the self in search of, you know, a lot of the shishosetsu is a search for something, but it's never clear what that something is. And so I, I think these are il- illustrative then of. A form of life of narrative that is in fact just more missing the, the point you know and so when we talk about witness that what we're describing then is that we do we are not the resource we're not going to turn inward and reveal something about ourselves i'm not saying that that's completely absent but I think a kind of mistaken understanding of Christianity, I don't know if it was there for you guys, when I became a Christian that was, you know, in actually in the late 60s, but then into the 70s, you just heard again and again, you would give your testimony. And of course, the testimonies all begin to sound the same, that, well, you know, I did drugs, and then, you know, I was bad, and... But, of course, what the testimony ends up being is is another kind of story told from the beginning in which, once again, you're not really getting to the point of the story, what makes sense of the story. And so I think that's what witness is. The story's not primarily about me, but rather I found who I am in this other story, and I connect my own understanding to this story. Witness then is a kind of truth, a form of truth, in which we don't own the truth. It's not my story. I don't control the story, but I participate in it. I think I know, you know, we we have hope for the ending of the story. And in fact, the middle parts of it, we may not have worked out yet. We really don't know all of the details. But in living out this story of witness, you know, that it is a, a kind of living, um, you know, we're following the, uh, I think it was Kevin Van Hooser, the story in a wrong way as a kind of pilgrimage in which you're going to go and conquer a foreign land, of quest story. In other words, you're just kind of a wandering uh, vagabond and, and you're, you're on a journey, but you don't know where the journey's leading but then he compares it to to mission. And mission then is a a little different. I think this gets at witness. The witness that we're giving, since we don't own the truth, and in fact that part of the unfolding of the story is that part of the mission is the unfolding of the reality of this truth in our witnessing to it and our living it out and our modeling it. That is that as we walk down this, this way we go this way it occurs to us the many facets of this understanding of this you know it is a it is a mission but it's a mission we we have a a kind of telos in the mission but the details of it are unfolding as we go and so it's a very different understanding than imagining we own it or it's our truth or it's coming from within us but in fact the truth is a is a realization as we move out uh, our life, then, and all that we are is a witness to this reality.
1: And this is actually becoming a little bit more clear to me, to be honest, as we go through this uh, to see how this is actually unfolding. Because we're talking about essentially that the the true story, the reality of things, is that Jesus Christ is at the center of of reality of the story. What we've said, uh, who that is, is that you know Jesus is the good that you know we can identify him, you know, with the good, with the uh, with a beautiful. At least for me, you know, we've talked about today that. Um, we can often believe a lie, a, a false story. You know I was saying earlier, it's like everyone's trying to tell us a story about how things really are, and we believe that story, right? And we believe that, well, no, actually it really is about liberal democracy. That's kind of what the real story really is about. It's like, no, that's the that's kind of like the huge claim that Christianity' is making is that it's not even about me. It's about Jesus. Now it's about me uh, and human beings in as much as the God became man and joined himself to humanity, right? That makes the story about us too. But I think what we're saying is, is that – and we do this, this same move theologically and we say, well, that's why justification by faith alone is what's front and center. It's because I have this problem. And I need it to get worked out. And like what we've been saying is that, well, really, that's only a mm-hmm. that's only one part of the story. And the bigger part of the story, I think John's done a really good job with the way we're kind of unfolding and laying this out to say that the Jesus Christ is the main play, actor, you know, in this drama, and that our lives aren't going to be as true as they should be until we conform ourselves to the reality, to the real story, to the true story. Is that right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think that's well put, Matt.
1: You want to weigh in there too? You know how how do we think about scriptures in the tradition because they are historical artifacts, but more importantly, sort of as living witnesses. How do we live out the story? We might not be able to. You know, there's the old saying that you might be the only Bible that anybody ever reads, kind of yeah. thing. You know, how do we how do we live this thing out in such a way that people can know that Jesus is the truth and He is the good? Yeah, and we're actually living out the right story.
2: Yeah, so there, I think there's two ways of thinking. They're the same way of thinking about it, put differently. One to me seems, one is subject to romanticization more than the other. But, you know, St. Vincent of Lorenz says, moreover, in the Catholic Church itself, all possible care must be taken that we hold that faith, which has been believed everywhere always by all. And what is, you know, the ultimate claim at work there is, hey, we're telling a story, we're telling the story, that is the body, the mystical body of Christ to the world, almost like what you just said in a kind of a cliche way. Um, it's it is We are Christ to those who need Jesus. We are an example of uh, a true story or a true way of being with the God. Now, uh, I already said a few minutes ago that there's a way of looking at history that says, "Well, yeah," but there's authentic and inauthentic developments. So it's not perhaps enough just to say well what the catholic church and catholic church think of it in the sense really just the universal body of christ well christ in the world may be a little bit harder to get at than just saying well it's what's always been done or there's a way of saying well that's what's always been done that is overly romantic and also would include a lot of inauthentic developments so i think rowan williams is helpful here as well in the sense that he talks about it a little bit differently but i think it's really the same idea And this isn't a direct quote, it's a paraphrase, because I think he says this somewhere in a lecture, but that it is important for us to pass on a faith that would be recognizable to those Christians who came before us. Mm -hmm. And when you put it in that kind of open-ended way, of course, that would be inclusive of the apostles, those who give us the scriptures, right? So in a way, it's saying, well, the faith that we Pass on The tradition itself needs to somehow be consistent with Jesus, crucified, resurrected, the Jesus who is incarnate among us. It's not enough just to say, well, if everybody's doing the same thing, that that's obviously an authentic development. So it goes a little bit further. So this is a way of saying, well, if what we have access to in the church is life in the Holy Spirit, it's it's to live what I think St. Paul describes as resurrected life. How do we do that? One aspect is to look back at our own lives as memoirs and see what's authentic and what's inauthentic. And we do that by moving forward. But we can also look to the Christian community and tell the story of the Christian community as a sort of a memoir. And we're usually better at this than we are about being honest about our own lives. That's to say, well, what are authentic developments? What is moving forward? What is of eternal significance? What is moving us towards union with God? How is the Holy Spirit making Christ's life manifest both in the body of Christ uh, and also in our own lives as individuals? And we start asking those questions. We begin to acknowledge uh, that we are living history, history's place in our own lives, Uh, The story that God is telling through time and space, and we're telling it in a certain way where it has a proper end, which has God as both the, the beginning and the end of that story yeah
1: and i think for me i think that embodying love you know this is what jesus said right i mean he said they'll know you by your love you know that if you love one another and so it's one thing for me to sit down and you know explain someone and say well let let me explain to you these different doctrines and if you can get these right and believe the right thing then you'll understand the the true story and the reality of things it's like but as i get on the road the 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 love and and i don't mean to just be sort of whatever flaky here i'm saying that This has to manifest itself in things like humility, things like truth-telling, confession even, of uh, nonviolence, of of loving enemies, of serving the poor. We're not just trying to be flaky here and say, oh, you know, to be a living witness, you just got to, you know, just talk about God's love or something like this. I mean, that is something that we should do. But I think that what we're saying is, is to really inhabit this story, you're going to have to do the things that Jesus did. You're going to have to imitate him. You're going to have to love your neighbor. You're going to have to forgive your neighbor. You're going to have to stop slandering people and talking bad about people. And you're going to have to repent. You know, you're going to have to let your light shine so that men can see your good works and glorify you know, your father in heaven. That you're going to live out the truth in such a way that it's really contrary to the stories that you know people are being told. By the media, by everybody else, by the world, right? It's that like art that people should look at our lives and see. You know, that our story is different, that we're inhabiting almost like a different reality, and that that manifests itself in completely contrary viewpoints, you know, than what most people have, where we're the people who come to the table and say, well, since Christ is resurrected, I forgive you. Since Christ is resurrected, we are going to refuse to go to war. We're going to inhabit this reality eschatologically in the sense that we're going to live out what we believe is going to happen, what has already happened in Christ, and so that we're not just pointing people to the letter of the scriptures or of the, of the tradition, but that they can quite literally come into contact, hopefully, with Jesus Christ through the Spirit in us. That the are sort of that living human document that you know that Paul says to the Corinthians, he's like, you know, you are my letter. To me, they have to see it in our ethics. They have to see, you know, the world would have to see uh, in our, that our story is just so uh, contrary to the other stories of the way that they normally think about these things. And so for me, what it means that resurrection life Um, is historically located and i want to actually hear more about what you guys think about this is that we could talk about it in the sense of of jesus resurrection being historically located but really that it's in uh that it needs to be located within me and within you and within the church in an embodied ethic
0: i want to point out that i think we've shifted and i'll see if you guys agree with me maybe you don't agree with me That in fact what we're describing is a shifting to a different center in the way that, first of all, that we read Scripture. That in some way the Gospels, the narrative of Christ, is now at the center of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the epistles then are going to refer back to this story the Old Testament, you know, in a sense, it's not simply referring forward, but we're going to read those two then through the light of this middle part of the story. And of course, what we see in the story of Jesus, what we see in the story of the Gospels is then, I think, centered on resurrection in a kind of failed theological understanding, a propositional understanding. There are many forms of a propositional understanding. I think what you get is a focus or the centrality is put upon the epistles or the, then the gospels, even in some theological systems, are counted out quite literally as pre-Christian. That, well, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, those are not for Christians. Well, that misses the whole point of putting Christ at the center. And the other part is that I think in a propositional and and various forms of that understanding, we really don't know what to do with the resurrection. It's important, but more than being central to the story, it's a kind of confirmation of something else. It's a confirmation, oh, the sacrifice of Christ is accepted, or it's a in some way, a a confirmation of his victory. But of course, the resurrection is integral to the story, and it's integral to our story. That this, then, is the point at which, and and not to leave out the death of Christ, where death is defeated, but that is that we enter into both the death and the resurrection of Christ. This is the depiction of, baptism, I think it's there in the Lord's Supper, that both elements are there, that it's the mode of, you know, the law of the cross, as John has described it, but the law of the cross, then, is also a law that we live out, that is, this self-sacrificial mode is one that we live out in the spirit of resurrection, that is, that where there was death, now there is life. And so, in narrative terms, what we're describing is that death is the controlling element, I think, in every story, or even a failed story, or, you know, the depiction of the human individual. That in some way, the orientation to law and death is that thing that is portrayed as the final enemy in Scripture. And so the movement of the life of Christ, the life, the death, and resurrection of Christ, is a defeat of this final enemy. And once we've said this, then this opens up an entirely different mode of living. This is why it's called, you know, we're we're to begin to live out this resurrection life now. All right, John, this is your chance to just
2: take us home, crank it out of the park. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I I think Paul's right. And I had several different thoughts. Like one, it's odd that St. Paul doesn't really quote Jesus or tell any of the story. He doesn't really spend any time telling stories about Christ. And I guess one could speculate is that because that's happening somewhere else or what. But he's very intent on preaching Christ crucified. But of course, all the major liturgical traditions would hold the Gospels in a place of privilege, such that. I mean, not only is it just the key to understanding scripture, but it's like, well, here's where you're fully going to meet Jesus, and everything else is really about this. So the Old Testament, the epistles, all of it's about the Gospels, and that's why the reading of the Gospel is set apart in any liturgical service. So I think all that's really key. It's being played out for us. So it, it is interesting that, well, why would we have other ways of reading scripture I mean, I guess that there's probably just, there's a story to be told there, like how we got into that habit of reading Scripture non-liturgically and whatnot. But yeah, no, I think Paul's definitely onto something, that in some way, by recapturing the centrality of the Gospels in a hermeneutic way, is to already begin to recapture the centrality of resurrection, and then puts the an emphasis on resurrection and access to resurrection life even in the here and now, which is basically what this, you know, we're talking about story, we're talking about narrative, that's what we're saying, is that the here and the now has a real importance because uh, we are living into resurrection, we have access to this reality that is even more than our day-to-day existence, um, but that's a real, it's not just an imagined thing, or it's not um, it's not that we just have like the sign of the thing. We truly have resurrected life. And so some of the implications I think that are, are best when we think about this is when we ask then, well, how how are we to take up our cross? How are we to live out this message that is Christ crucified and risen again? How do we proclaim the gospel? And I think the fear is, and this is what Paul was talking about earlier with the psychoanalytic bits, the fear is that we would approach anyone else, and even the world itself, creation itself, as if we just don't quite have it within ourselves to be able to give what others need, uh, to have decent relationships. We just don't quite have it within ourselves to give what we need to to uh, care of the earth, uh, care of our fellow human beings, such that we're always aware of this lack that we have, and we usually take that out on others and, and the world in some form of violence, But if we have resurrection life, if this is the message we're proclaiming even in the here and the now, we're saying, well, actually, we're not being asked to give our own lives. We're asked to give the life that we have that's joined to Christ. In some way, we're able to give of the infinite life of God even in and through ourselves. We're able to give of the infinite love of God even through ourselves, which puts us, I think, Uh, this is what Paul was talking about, it does reorient us within creation, within how we understand who we are ourselves and how we understand other people in such a way that that's what becomes uh, to define or give shape, maybe a better metaphor, to give shape to what it means to live resurrected life here and now. Yeah,
1: Paul said a, a cool thing. You know the stories that were that we normally um, inhabit, certainly outside of Christ, or uh, at least for me. And I think most of us, you know, are the stories of something like you know power and money and sex. And what Paul was describing is is yeah, another name for that ultimately is death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what uh, separates us, you know, as Christians in the story that we're trying to tell is that uh, death has been dethroned. That's right. And that the life. And specifically, the life of Jesus Christ uh, is the reality. It's the it's the way that things
2: really are. That's right. And so, the way we tell the story is important because we are ultimately telling God's. We're telling the story that God would tell about us and about creation and, and through mm. our lives. Mm. Yeah,
0: I sure wouldn't know who I am without you guys. I appreciate well, you guys. We
2: would. I wouldn't be who I was without you. So that's true
1: i definitely wouldn't either i'm serious i think about that all the time i'm like i see this is the thing that like john might not know i mean john i literally grew up with a giant american flag on my bedroom wall <laughs> reading e james kennedy you know he had a thing that came every month reclaiming america for christ oh, wow i had all of our rc scrolls books Oof. i i mean i'm i listened to dave dr david jeremiah chuck swindoll charles stanley you know hank hanagraph it was full, you know, uh, focus on the family. I mean, this is what, you know, I did this for years, you know. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, I listened to Rush Limbaugh every day. Oh, my. Hours. Wow. I was, a, you know, I was a ditto head for years, for two or three years, you know. I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i just totally.
2: Yeah, I was a
1: Calvinist. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's crazy that the effect that we really can have on our friends, you know.
2: See, I mean, I'm lucky for Paul because I just wound up in, and that could have had such bad adverse. You know, I look back on it and I, really, I didn't grow up a fundamentalist. I grew up in this church that didn't really know what it was. But if it had to self-describe itself, it would just say, well, we were disciples of Christ. And now we're just, you know, a, a rural church. But the same people that were the people, mm-hmm. I mean, they still had a, I grew up under a disciples of Christ minister. This guy had a PhD, right? It just what, it wasn't fundamentalism i realized i wound up at central probably just not knowing a whole lot of anything about christianity and how bad that could have turned out <laughs> I mean, john was supposed to be your path right like i mean paul i
1: didn't know this about you but he was just telling me the other day he said yeah you know you know john was a like a cowboy farmer yeah. you know boot buckle yeah. hat it's like and then you and then like it's like people are like wait this guy's actually really smart when it comes to theology and it's like now you're a freaking priest it's like god that took a turn
2: (laughs) i mean yeah yeah i guess so i mean a lot of it was because so male influences in my family were like so this is the weird thing about my family it's like everybody's got a college education, right? So it was a foregone conclusion I was going to college. I didn't have a choice. But the weird thing about it is there was this weird, you know, like Missouri uh, misogynistic type of like, well, it's okay for the girls to go off and study things like history and English or psychology or whatever uh, and, you know, do master's degrees and those things. But if you're, you know, if you're a guy, you got to do, you got to, you got to do something that's going to make money. You got to be a bread. And I think it comes from having a pretty high quality of life, right? Like I, I didn't know this growing up until the very end when I was work farm, you know, when I was more involved in the farming operation, like just the huge sums of money that farmers make. Uh, And so I think there was also this idea like, well, you can't just go to school for anything because you might not have this quality of life, except my grandpa really did not want me to be a farmer. Because of, uh, I mean, just the iffiness of the whole thing, right? And so even though they're making bank, it's like, well, what do you do about retirement? And it costs so much more to retire now. And just, you know, as he's watching his health insurance prices go up and things like that, as the, as the reality of living in the United States was changing. He's like, nah, you need to go go have a job that at least has a retirement and that kind of thing. I think the real thing, they they wanted me to go do something that would make money and nobody thought like studying history or something like that would have, because I always had these weird interests. It just, um, it wasn't presented to me as like a viable option for what I might do in college. So it's like, go do agricultural business. That's what you need to do. There's right. money in ag business. Not study so, theology. Yeah. Exactly. That was actually that was the the hang up was well, don't you need a real job first? <laughs> then you could go do that. Like it was sort of like, yeah, you can go do that later, but make sure you have your bases covered first. Right. Now,
1: nobody understands. Yeah.
0: And that was your degree at Mizzou, right? It was, Mizzou. It was ag yeah. business yeah. ag?
1: Did you finish it?
0: No, no, I only did a year.
1: And then Paul, I mean, think about how wonderful it is. You know, that so in your context, it's like. Well, you know, you got royally, just ridiculously screwed. But the crazy thing is, is that you're having a conversation with two of your former students. You know, you have a great friendship with Jason. In other words, like you still have this community. It's like God really took care of you. You know, this is what we were talking about. It's the embodied love of the community. It's like, well, and someone said this earlier, they never recognized Jesus. And I was thought about it. I'm like, you know, he's actually right. It's like Mary didn't recognize him. The disciples didn't, you know, the Mayas people, they didn't recognize. And it's like, well, I probably don't recognize him either then. That's the whole point. And it's like, and so, you know, but I, I do think that the love that you guys, you know, show. And I always say, man, God looks different than what we think he does. You know, it's like he. He just does he 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 looks like the beautiful he looks like love he looks like the good you know and all that stuff and so it's amazing how when you think about what salvation is what love is what the community who jesus is you know what's happening it's like whoa It's, you know, this is Jerzak was talking about. It's like, uh, it might have been Gregory of Nazianzus who said that whatever hasn't been assumed by God's nature is sort of still not redeemed. And so
2: I think Athanasius is the first to sort of put that out there.
1: Well, because, and so what Jerzak's point was, they're talking about that Jesus was found in the likeness of human flesh. And so it's to like really identify with us. Fully humanly, right? Like with our minds, our sort of, I mean, he was born of a, of a woman. So, you know, it's like he, you know, he had the fleshly nature that we have in some way. He was fully human. Well, yeah, not in some way. Like he was fully
2: human. <laughs> he was definitely so what worthy. Jerzak
1: was saying is, then that means then, so it's like, well, how does Christ redeem us? How does he save us? Well, he saves us in our humanity. In other words, he saves us in our human minds, in our human emotion. That's just, I mean,
2: yeah, this is the first atonement theory, really, recapitulation. Well, this is
1: that that's how we do, that's how we're saved in our friendships, is I guess what I'm viewing at. Like, that's right.
2: Absolutely. You know. Yeah, our lives are, like, subsist in the relationships we have with other people. Yeah, it's
1: like, I would literally probably have several times had, like, mental breakdowns Where and had Jesus not shown up in the form of my friends and helped
0: me, Mm you're here. 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 Where
1: if Jesus wouldn't have showed up in the form of my friends, I might not have made it through, I might have went, I might have picked up,
2: uh, (laughs) you know, bad habits or something, you know, whatever. Actually, you know, it would be an interesting interview is Paul because, like, I had the privilege of going to the Stone Campbell Journal conference with Paul a couple of times, and you know, Paul always tells us, like, oh, you know, fundamentalism to this, but Paul was, you're interesting because you. Or, like, living out in the middle of nowhere with, and you all had convicts living with you. You, Like, I just know all these, like, strange stories where it feels like you were always on the way towards... Like, I wouldn't want to tell your life as a quest, but it seems like you were always sort of um, headed the direction of, like, pacifism and loving your enemy or your neighbor or just being very open and accepting.
0: I always regret that early on... I hadn't met somebody if just a little little nudge it would have saved me so much toil and turmoil and pain. It I didn't even know what pacifism was. I didn't know what the nonviolent gospel was. I was in Texas after all. Yeah. My instincts were there. I was 13. You know what what can you do at 13? And so slowly I got sucked into an understanding this has been a it has been a journey it's been a painful journey i'm not envious but your guys experience i think being introduced early on to an alternative understanding it really does save you a a lot yeah the only thing you know about is calvinism that's your option you know so we know what people have told us we we operate on testimony of other people and where that testimony or that witness is lacking man that creates a painful hole in our lives that we that of course only now can i look back and realize man if if somebody had stepped into my life that had offered me something other than texas evangelical you know restoration movement pietistic mm-hmm. revivalistic it would have certainly saved me a lot of a lot of uh, pain and heartache oh
2: yeah i see what you're saying if these were your only options
0: and paul what's you know really ironic
1: about all that is that god used you to be that person in our yeah. lives
2: yeah i mean you caught me real young right 19 yeah i
1: mean i still had to go through the pain i mean there was yeah. it wasn't a painless thing you know but uh, You know, Paul got me, like, right around 28, something like that, 29.
2: I mean, I guess, yeah, I think, like, thank you, yeah. Paul, I never became a fundamentalist. But praise God. Yeah. Praise
0: God from whom all bless you, you know. I remember both of you coming in very clearly. John, I I have to admit, I, I was always, you know, you blossomed, as both of you did, but you passed clear through one of my classes, and it seemed... And I, it may have just been the class. It may have been the circumstance. I, th- When I met you, I thought, oh, mm-hmm. here's a, a a gem, you know, maybe a diamond in the rough. And you passed through and you went on.
2: Oh, you didn't get it? Well, I would just say it's because we didn't end up having a personal relationship until after. We didn't have a lot of interaction outside of class or anything. And, I mean, I'm 19 years old, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't know you could like talk to your professors, but then, um, uh, I got an invite to the honors program after that year. And so it was the next fall that I started the philosophy class with you. And then okay. when I got the invite to do the honors program, that's when we actually mm-hmm. like, met mm-hmm. outside of a classroom and the philosophy class was a lot smaller. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't a mixed class. Yeah, yeah, It was just honor students. And so I felt like you immediately like built a relationship with all of us. There's only like four of us in there. Right. You know, I think that's what it took for me was just knowing, oh, well, we can continue this conversation. That's definitely what it was for me too. I remember sitting in, I mean, John, this is,
1: I don't know that, I don't think you knew Ryan.
2: I mean, I know him after, I didn't know him. I know him now.
1: Like when I first met him. So just, you got to picture this. They're so like, remember. Well, this is the part of me that you probably don't know about. I was sort of coming off the streets. Like still kinda of rough around the edge. I was like living the street life, man, for like at least ten years. Yeah. Um and so I and it was like so and, and Ryan was my the RA. And he was like an alien from a different planet, man. Like like meeting him was like meeting someone from a different planet, right? And it was like, and so once he kind of, I guess he communicated to Paul, he was like, you know, I've been talking to this guy, this guy, Matt, you know, you might like him. He's all fired up about theology and stuff like that. And I, you know, they invited me and I just remember, I used to just sit and just listen to Paul and Ryan talk. And I'm not kidding, man. I might've learned, I (laughs) might've understood 5% of what they were saying, like, i didn't even understand the words that were like coming out of their mouth i was like trying to learn the it's like i had to learn the language before i could even you know start learning the content yeah yeah i mean but i had the privilege of being able to be able to i mean ryan is brilliant i remember i read something from you know this is like when the internet this is like 2007 i remember ryan wrote a reflection on the beauty of the infinite and I remember thinking, I read the whole thing and I was like, I don't think I understand literally anything of what I just read. Gotcha. Like yeah. and it was like a decent sized blog, like reflection. And I was like, I don't think I understand anything of what did not even one sentence, you know. And so and then and he handed me I said, Ryan, I was like, I just don't know, man. I don't know if I can do this. And he handed me Miroslav's Wolf's book. It's called Exclusion and Embrace. And he said, uh, read that. And he said, you gotta learn how to read. You know what I mean? I was like, what do you mean I know how to read? And But it's like, no, no, I really didn't. And so it's like, I started exclusion and embrace. I started reading through it and I'm like, I would go 10 pages and be like, I don't understand anything that I read at all, nothing. And he's like, that's okay, man. Just keep reading and just like underline something if you kind of get it and you'll, you'll get it, you'll learn it. And it was like, he was right. Like he, I, you, I really did have to learn how to do it. But these guys were so patient with me I would just listen, you know, uh, to their conversations. And it was like, I, there's nowhere. I would I would have not rather have gone to Notre Dame or anything. I mean, it was just like, it was like, I didn't, was it you, John, that told me that, was it Maximus who talks about our
2: yeah. being yeah. our education? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Maximus, you know, kind of playing with the question of like, why is it that we're born in the time that we are? Says, well, that's because it's that it's all those conditions that are so beyond us are actually essential to us coming to salvation.
1: Yeah. It's a, I mean, that's an amazing point by the way.
2: I mean, it's an education and I mean that taken,
1: and I'm telling you that one of the big, the best insights that I've had in a while coupled, I love that one. And then couple that with origins notion of, you know, the, the, that God allows the demons in your life precisely so that you can vanquish them. You know what I mean? To me, that's wonderful. It's like okay, it's an edu- In other words, Origin is talking about life as an education. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the whole thing. It's an education, and the whole reason why these forces are allowed to be unleashed upon you of evil. You know, in some sense, it's like he's not doing a theodicy, I don't think, but he is saying that no, this is your opportunity to vanquish your enemy, to become the person that God created you to be. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's I mean the sad thing is I just says, you know, we're weird sort of people that need <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were I mean, I don't know about you, but I was
1: degenerate. So I I definitely needed uh you know. But no, and, and I mean it, it worked out. And it's like it's crazy that, you know, over ten years later we're having a podcast and that we're we're friends and that we're and it's weird that we're 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 sort of on three we're on the same road, all of us, or we wouldn't be able to have this kind of friendship and chemistry, but we are on a little bit yeah. slightly different trajectories and things like that. And I just think it's wonderful, the diversity. And I think that it really does hold true to sort of the thing that Paul's always taught us about what yeah. it means, you know, Christ- Christian love and unity and things like that. I mean, we're doing it.
0: This is it. I, I think this, I, this is the, uh, I've always thought of mm-hmm. the conversation as the thing. Yeah. Now,
1: Thing that, that was the thing that stood out to me in the road to Emmaus you know they're walking they're walking down the thing and Jesus says to him what's this conversation that mm-hmm. you guys are having you know I love it that's it's my favorite story in the scripture yeah. you know I can't hardly get through it without getting emotional it's like he's you know that's he's right. saying to them yeah. you know what's this conversation that you're having and then that's what the disciples do you know and they start kind of telling him the story and he's you know it's just uh it's a wonderful little picture of what it means and you know the, the of course the famous line of you know we're you know that our hearts not burning you know as he opened up the scriptures oh, sure. it's like you don't really understand how beautiful that is until you've had that experience mm-hmm. so thank yeah. you guys for helping yeah Well,
2: the... no, definitely i mean just i i think it is interesting to think about how crucial like I like to say just studying with Paul was just like how crucial that was just in my development as a human being. Yeah. I'm willing to give you the credit. Well, Paul. that's, I'm-
1: well, that's, the, that's the thing, man. And I, and i really do mean this and I've told Margaret this. It's like, <laughs> I, you know, I, there's people in my life that I guess I really don't want to be like they're Christians but I really don't have any aspirations and to say like, oh, you know, I sure hope that I can be like that guy. I mean, it's like, I, you know, you know I, I love David Bentley Hart, but I don't necessarily want to like be like David Bentley Hart. Um, yeah. But I want to be like Paul. You know what I'm saying? I want to be like Paul Axley. You know, I want to have those, if I was a teacher, I would want to have, you know, I want I to appreciate have
2: that. this kind of relationship. Yeah,
1: questions. I want to, to know sure. how to have a conversation and to know, I mean, no one in my life that I've ever known has more of a desire to learn about the, you know tr- has more of a passion for truth than for
2: you know for study. yeah well and Paul you're so humble about it right <laughs> like that's the thing I mean see you you introduced me to like this idea of academia that's just fundamentally false <laughs> it's like I saw you and I was thinking that's great and then you realize well actually most academics yeah. are just awful <laughs> people <laughs> <You know? laughs> I
1: mean, it, none of this yeah. would mean anything if Paul was like... I mean, Paul could have been teaching us all this stuff, but if he was, like, a jerk, like, it, what would it be for? I mean,
2: it's...
1: it's <laughs> yeah. It, it wouldn't, it wouldn't you know? have done anything for and us. So it's like, you have, you know, you have all your rebellious yeah. sons, you know, who have said, oh, we're going to go do these different traditions. And <laughs> you
2: still know,
1: I mean... We're going would... over- to overthrow the father, you know, whatever. Whatever metaphor. You know,
2: did, you know. but, yeah, uh, we're all just little Mardus. I really do think that, for me,
1: this is the way. I... I appreciate you allowing me to to do that and to support me. That was something I was thinking about actually this morning when I woke up. I was like, "Man, Paul has actually been super supportive every step yeah. of the way." That's a good friend. You're yeah, a good when friend. I when I met Kierkegaard, you know, when I took Chris's class with Kierkegaard, I'm not kidding, man. I went, "This is just what Paul's been saying," and and Kierkegaard is just saying it in a you're sort of higher, not- more philosophical, you know, way or whatever. And then when i same thing with orthodoxy i was like wait a second this is like what i've been taught yeah. well i can literally say
2: that because it's like well i'm just doing milbank paul <laughs> i'm just doing this ro stuff and...
0: oh i appreciate that no i just assumed that you guys are yeah. going to go further and think harder and do greater things and uh, if i've been a little part of that that's enough
2: oh, well that's very sweet
1: that's- but well, you we need to put your book. That's not an excuse for you not to put out your next book.
0: Yeah. It's been great, guys.
1: All right. I will talk yep. to you guys later. We'll see you. Uh, I'm sorry. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com Paul Axton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.